0: to <laughs>
1: Sam.
2: I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we should not even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger, they were. And sometimes you did not want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was, when so much bad, when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they did not. They kept going, because they were holding on to
0: something. What are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo.
2: And it's worth fighting for. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chomping After Dark, the podcast where we spoil your favorite games and the occasional movie. We have come together this week to discuss one of the greatest movies in one of the greatest trilogies ever created. The film holds a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, if that's important to you, won multiple Oscars and a Grammy, and made $947.5 million. It contains arguably the greatest on-screen battle in the history of cinema, and it has one of the best ensemble casts. Today, we will be discussing The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. The scene that Rich and I reenacted just now is a scene that I often think about when I feel unworthy of praise, when I feel my daily efforts to make the world better are inconsequential, or when I feel bitter about what has happened to me throughout the day, week, month, or even year. I can't wait to be continuing this series today, and yes! we will be discussing the extended edition of the movie. But before you hear two grown men weep tears of joy and nostalgia, just a few quick reminders. If this is your first time here and you are loving what you are hearing, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to hear more from us, head over to swordchomp.com where we have more podcasts, written reviews of the newest titles, a merch store that has some of the coolest merch ever that Sam and Frodo totally would have worn to Mordor if they could have, and plenty more. Lastly, if you want to support us so we can continue to make wonderful content such as this and you earn something in return, please consider going to patreon.com slash where you will find a plethora of tiers to get additional and exclusive content such as early access to Chomping After Dark episodes, access to a private Discord and Instagram, Patreon exclusive podcasts, and much more. Okay, let's introduce you to the names of the voices that you will be hearing today, and you already have actually heard today. First, we have Farmer Maggot's Sewage Serviceman, the Urukais Underwear Embroiderer. And Auscilius remaining court before it is completely overrun,
1: Rich Meister. Rich, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm just here to let you know that they're taking the hobbits to Isengard.
2: I watched that 10-hour YouTube video.
1: Uh, it's real good.
2: It's real good. It, it's real good, but like it's it comes in waves. You know what I mean? And that's
1: yeah, f- yeah. I, I, I you, set, you, set put, you up for you her. That's that. That's what on. she said,
2: joking. You didn't take it.
1: I know you did, but I let it go. You you pop that on, right? And you just like your buddy's looking at you like, why are we doing this? And you're like, it comes back around like at like hour four. Yeah, so just, exactly. Just strap in exactly. You just got to accept it. I have a video. um... Took it about ten years ago.
2: My little brother, he was I think three or four at the time. He was dancing to that, and I'm definitely whenever he gets married, I'm definitely going to bring that up. Um, That's one of those videos that I'm never going to get rid of, and like I watch it sometimes, it makes me smile. Him dancing to taking the hobbits to Isengard. It's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. But (laughs) yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this movie with you. Obviously, the first one we did was a ton of fun. Um that episode is going to be dropping here in a day don't... or so. Uh, I've been lazy on editing that, Ooh. but I'm really excited that we're already back and doing this second one because
1: uh I've been itching to talk about this movie. I'm s- I'm so excited to talk about The Battle of Helm's Deep because it just there's like I have like notes upon notes upon that like end section of the film because there's so much weird shit and so much production shit that I feel like hasn't been matched since then. I'm, just, I'm I'm there's there's key points of this movie I'm very excited to discuss. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. And, um,
2: yeah, like I didn't really brief you on this going going into the episode, but if there's stuff that I miss that you're like, hey, we need to loop back around and discuss it, please feel free to because like obviously with a four hour movie trying to keep this as, as compact as possible, I'm bound to miss some things. And if you're like, oh man, you you really needed to focus on this a little bit more. I totally understand. So, um,
1: and that's kind of like a. Well, don't worry. I plan to stop you in your in your tracks to talk about the, um, to get all like Tolkien Scholar on you so we can really talk about like Valinor and what it is. Don't worry. I have notes about that. I, I actually, I have some Tolkien Scholar stuff too. I actually did that, some, uh, I'm, I'm some glad. Research. I'm glad we're on the same page here.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there was some context needed for this movie,
1: like with the books well, that I felt like. It's the same, Uh, like, context needed sort of stuff in the first. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go for it. Go for it. I'll say it's the same context needed sort of stuff that I, I, like, took the time to write down when I was thinking of it, like, in the first episode when I was like, all right, we're talking about the Balrog. We need to stop and discuss just how ridiculous what, like, the, the lore of what this fucking thing is and what it's doing here is.
2: Yeah, yeah, like, that was one of those things where. For example, yeah, when we discuss the Bal- Balrog, or Balrog, whatever you want to call him, Balhog, um, that, like, the movie obviously can't sit and get into the lore of what that is, but it's so much more than what it appears on screen. And obviously, I think the movies do a good job of, like, hey, if you're actually really interested in what the hell this is, go read the books. Go read The Cimmerillion? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Rich, I'm glad you're here. Um before we get into any more talk, let me introduce myself really quickly. I am Shay Layton, grima Wormtongues Wingman, Rohan's Horse's Stable Boy, and Gollum's Estranged Lover. And I'm so happy to be here. Um I really enjoyed uh Fantastic. I enjoyed giving us titles for this one. I worked really like obscenely hard to make those as funny and as unique as I possibly could. Um I think the one I'm most proud of out of all those was Farmer Maggot Sewage Serviceman because he's such a minor character. It's, it's
1: so specific,
2: <laughs> and that's why. That's why it was. Just, I I wrote the first thing that came to my mind. I was like Farmer Magnet, Farmer Magnet, Farmer Maggot. Like, what would be funny um, to to have Rich be with Farmer Magnet? And I was like Sewage Serviceman, I guess, because I don't think he'd really need it. Farmer Maggot Maggot probably just shits in a hole and covers it up kind of thing, but yeah, it it was, uh, it was fun to write those intros, but <laughs> th- from this point on... Absolutely. <laughs> from this point on, as is customary around these here parts, there will be spoilers. If you somehow haven't seen the trilogy or read the books, now is the time to dedicate the rest of your day, or night, to watching this exquisite movie. It's about 4 to 4.5 hours. The 4 hour version,
1: that's the one we're talking
2: about. <laughs> Yeah, the four-hour one. So you're in for a long movie. But now, turn the lights down low. Slip into something more comfortable. Grab your favorite pipe weed that Gandalf gave you after his many adventures. And sip on a nice, tasty beverage as we tell you a tale by the fireplace. Gandalf and the Balrog of Moria tumble down as they are entwined in their battle. They plummet to the briny deep, and as they are about to hit the surface of the water, Frodo wakes up from his dream. Frodo and Sam find themselves lost near Mordor, and they discover that they are being stalked by Gollum, one of the former bearers of the One Ring. Frodo and Sam capture Gollum, but Frodo takes pity on the creature, seeing some of himself in Gollum. Gollum offers to guide them into the heart of Mordor, despite Sam's doubts. Now, Rich, I don't know how well you remember the beginning of the movie, but you did mention that you just watched it right before this podcast. But it's one of the few scenes that doesn't have the amazing soundtrack playing in the background throughout the entire sequence as Frodo and Sam walk around. Instead, while they are discussing certain aspects of what's happening, the soundtrack is peppered in. To accentuate the various conversations, how well did that work in setting, settling you into the second movie?
1: Um, I think I think it does what what they were intending there, which um, I I think a lot of the moreover silence is meant to one drive home the fact that uh, Frodo and Sam are on their own now that the rest of the fellowship has gone a a different path, and two um, sort of get that sort of ominous feeling that they're being stalked across that, that Gollum is watching them, has been watching them since Moria. Uh, and, uh, I mean, using a soundtrack sparingly is a smart decision in, in some places. And I do think it works here. The soundtrack in this, these, these films is so fucking phenomenal. We spent a lot of time on it last time and there there are spots here where I'm sure we will again.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing I do want to mention here that like, I completely agree with you. the, The sound um, engineering here, the sound design, everything is so well done because obviously the soundtrack does a lot of heavy, I don't want to say a lot of heavy lifting, it does a lot for this film. But I think obviously, ultimately, it would have been the choice of the sound production team to say, you know what? Let's not put the soundtrack in here. Let's make it very quiet. Let's put a little bit in there to just really build that tension. And the soundtrack really starts coming in when Sam and Frodo are pretending to be asleep and Gollum is descending and you hear him talk um, in the, in the second movie for the first time and he's talking about how he's going to take the One Ring back. That's when the soundtrack actually fully starts coming back in. And it builds... Like crescendos in, kind of, yeah. Yeah, it builds so well. It's so well done. And shout out to the sound production team for that it really sets you into the movie and it exactly what Rich said it really builds that idea that the fellowship is broken up at this point there there are one two three there are four separate um fractures of the fellowship at this point at this current point and um yeah each group is kind of on their own and so five I think if you count Boromir's this, corpse <laughs> <laughs> right um it really drives that point home which i appreciate so well so i think it does a good job at the at the very beginning but um is, is there anything you want to mention about that intro stuff before we move on rich
1: no i, I think the more uh, this is all set up for who who golem is and i think the more interesting uh stuff comes later with with golem slash meagle as uh, we sort of learn learn a bit more about the creature.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, this this intro bit is really important to note, and it's important to note that Frodo takes pity on Gollum because he sees some of himself in Gollum, and that's going to play later into the conversation where we're going to be having about what Rich is saying, Gollum and Smeagol.
1: So we'll move on. And, and uh, it's also, oh, I think that the pity thing is an important like reflection that more more so comes through in the novel um because of it having the history of the hobbit but would still come through for people who who read the hobbit to talk about like gollum even being here gollum would have been dead a long time ago if bilbo di- hadn't taken pity on him right uh years prior uh in uh in the goblin king's mountain right exactly
2: exactly yeah there's there's a there's a lot to unpack there that the intro does really well of kind of peeking the viewer's interest to say, hey, you want to know more about this. You know where the source material is, kind of thing. And it, it stays pretty true to the overall theme and idea of what's trying to be conveyed there. All right, back into the story. Meanwhile, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are running after the Urukai in order to rescue Merry and Pippin. They enter the kingdom of Rohan. The Urukai are ambushed by the Rohirrim the protectors of Rohan. Merry and Pippin are able to escape and run into Fangorn Forest. As Aragorn's group gets close to the dispatched Urukai, hai Eomir and the rest of the Rohirrim meet with them to explain that the men have been exiled by Theoden, Rohan's king. Theoden's mind is controlled by Saruman and manipulated by Grima Wormtongue, his servant. Eomir admits to the trio of heroes that he thinks Merry and Pippin perish during the skirmish, and he leaves them two horses from two deceased Rohirrim members. At this point in the movie, it is clear that we are going to be bouncing between the different affected parties. We see the fellowship broken up, which is the continuation of the ending of the first movie, and now we see each sub-party break off into their own journey while this story isn't the first example of this concept do you think that the two towers and the lord of the rings in general mastered this concept and influenced every story that
1: utilized this method of storytelling i they definitely weren't the first to do this no. um having rewatched it recently the the this movie handles it very well And it is juggling a lot, especially in those extended editions, because they they devote a lot more time to Merry and Pippin in the extended editions. Um, And they manage to, especially later, uh, sort of juggle the perspectives well of Frodo and Sam. Because Frodo and Sam's story, at this point, is mostly very slow goings. It is uh, dealing with the Rangers of Gondor. It is just trying to get to where they need to get to and being slowed by the people they encounter. Whereas, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli actually really settle what they were looking for fairly quickly into the events of the two towers and then are sort of put on a different path of uniting men and elves and all this stuff we'll get into. Um, but I, I I think it deals with pacing really well and it is juggling a lot of moving parts. Yes, absolutely. yeah. I One of the things that I felt that this movie
2: did really well, and I'm sure the book does just as well, is... I never felt like throughout the two towers that we were focusing on one sub group, sub party too long, you know, and I never felt like it was too short either. Um, you're, you're watching what's happening with this one group and what their goal is at that current point in time, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to achieve, what's happening with them. And then at the moment where maybe something's going to be revealed or, you're about to the, the audience is about to grow tired and start to wonder what's happening to the other group. You're already being transported and you're like, oh, yeah, now let's get to know about Frodo and Sam and what's happening with them with Gollum. And then you watch that for a little bit. Things get intense. And then you're warped to what Mary and Pippin are doing with um within the Fangorn forest. And you start to you start to just get constantly transported back and forth. It doesn't feel like whiplash and it doesn't feel stale either, which I think speaks to how well um, this was filmed and how well in general, it was just written from the beginning by J.R.R. Tolkien, because we can look at some more contemporary uh, films and movies that do that. Obviously the first one that comes to a lot of people's mind is game of Thrones, which Kind of took that concept to the next level in terms of all the different parties at play in that uh, book series and in that TV series. Um, despite w- the the ending of Game of Thrones, obviously that's the the TV show. That's a discussion for a different day. Um, I I feel like maybe Game of Thrones, and this is like, this is kind of a moot argument or mute, moot discussion, but I feel like to the level to which Game of Thrones exists, couldn't have probably existed as well without the template from J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I really feel like, like we said, That's true of a lot of fantasy. It's not the first example, but it's such a great example for others to model themselves after. And it's not the only reason to model yourself after this, this body of work, especially if you are a writer. It's not the only reason, but it's a very good reason. I think.
1: Also, um and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this later when we're getting into the Battle of Helm's Deep. Uh you talk about Game of Thrones and like wearing it's Lord of the Rings influence on its sleeve. When it comes to certain design choices that Game of Thrones made, I personally feel it took all the wrong lessons from Lord of the Rings and we I will talk specifically about that when we get to the Battle of Helm's Deep.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm keen. I'm keen to hear kind of where you go with it because yeah, I I felt like it definitely took some things away that were good, but yeah, I, I'm curious to hear your take on that. So uh, not no, we're going to rush forward, but uh, let's continue onward. No, no. <laughs> As Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli search through Fangorn Forest for a trace of Merry and Pippin, they're surprised by Gandalf. Only he is now Gandalf the White a resurrected wizard to help save Middle-earth. So before we go any further, I wanted to clear something up for fans of the movie trilogy, but have never read the books. I myself was always confused by this transformation. It simply appears that the wardrobe change is the only major difference between Gandalf the Grey from The Fellowship of the Ring and Gandalf the White from The Two Towers and The Return of the King. However, there are many context clues that are Buried in the movie that tell exactly what this transformation means. First, Gandalf was resurrected by the major deity Eru. He was given greater powers and wisdom while also retaining his memories from his past life. Those powers are shown by him overcoming Saruman's hold on Thaedin, breaking Saruman's staff and his increased battle capabilities shown in The Return of the King, the next movie that we will be doing and discussing in the future. Beyond the powers, Gandalf the White is a more serious wizard, no longer partaking in earthly pleasures like pipeweed and fireworks. He has a mission to accomplish, and he's going to focus on doing just that. So, why white? Is that color significant? Absolutely. The color signifies the position of a wizard in their order, to put it simply. Because Saruman betrayed the world, and the Order, by aligning himself with Sauron, he was stripped of his title. If you pay attention to the two towers, you can see Saruman becoming slowly more grungy and dirty, signifying his lost position as the head of the Order. Gandalf is actually appointed the new leader. Now, I know that's a lot of information, but it was one of those major questions that I didn't understand when I was younger and when watching the movies. So I hope that helps you if you didn't already know. But now, let's get back to the story. Gandalf leads the three heroes to Edoras, the capital of Rohan, where they successfully free King Theoden from Saruman's mental grasp. Theoden attempts to execute Grima Wormtongue for his actions to allow for Saruman's control, but Aragorn stops him. Theoden learns of his son's death and grieves in a harrowing funeral scene. Gandalf tells Theoden and the people of Edoras of Saruman's planned invasion with his Urukai army. Theoden opts to evacuate to Helm's Deep, a fortress, to protect the remaining citizens of Rohan. So, Rich, we discussed this a little bit in the last episode, but if it isn't clear at this point, everyone in Middle-earth will not walk away unscathed by this war. Even the hobbits, who are notorious for not involving themselves in worldly affairs, will not be unaffected. Now, I know that the concept of war changes everyone is a theme that we have seen time and time again in media, but I think it's fair to say that The Lord of the Rings is one of the greatest examples of this theme. In your personal opinion, what about the story do you think lends itself to being such an expert example of the theme, War Changes
1: Everyone? Um, I think why it handles that so well, for one, there are two lead examples in The Two Towers specifically and that comes from uh stuff that in the movies I think both movies do a fair job of getting these points across early about the tension after all these years between men and elves after what happened with the ring last time with the sealed door and uh also establishing the hobbit way of life and you know hobbits don't get involved with adventures they don't do anything like this Th- this is unusual for them and those two key uh points you have in this film specifically and and in this novel um one uh, one coming up shortly, which we'll discuss when the elves finally arrive at Helm's Deep, um, after reflection from Elrond. And the other, and I think one of the more important ones, because it really shows how much the hobbits have grown since, uh, since leaving, is Merry and Pippin discussing with the Ents of Fangorn... Um, and sort of being the catalyst for them going, no, this affects you too, and you need to fight. Like you can't keep putting this off. You can't keep waiting for uh, Saruman to be knocking on your door. You have to do something.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a it's such an interesting concept. Obviously, the, it has so many parallels to um, daily life, and that's that's what I love about this movie. There are a lot of quotes in here that seem dramatic and seem over the top without context, but then you watch what's happening like the like the opening dialogue that we did. It seems so dramatic and it seems so intense. So why would we start off a show like that? And why why does it happen in the first place? Obviously no context, you're like what the fuck's going on? But um it there's so much parallels to daily life and even this this particular concept that we're talking about, this theme, very much reflects everyday life. Um, for me, most of my young life I spent, you know, kind of sitting on the fence, not wanting to take a side because I want to hear both sides. And then even after I hear both sides, a lot of times I would just still sit on the fence. And the thing is, there are certain times when that's applicable and there are certain times where you need to take a side because everyone will be affected by something, you know, um, obviously we're recording this while well, COVID is still an issue. And, um, to sit and kind of just like, I'm, I'm not here to preach one side or the other. I'm so before, like I could, I could feel like, so allow you me know, in the future, I could feel people like bracing their, their seat or like bracing themselves, bracing something ready for me to get preachy. I'm not going to get preachy about for or against whatever actions for COVID. All I'm saying is that this is a, a situation that has affected everybody in some way, shape or form. And for you to not take a side. Um, you know, is 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 in my opinion not, to not take a side at all is th- the worst choice you can make because this has literally affected everybody except maybe like the two tribes in the Amazon's who don't like worry about technology or literally anything. Other than those two tribes or however many, you know, I'm being facetious here. Um, the Pennsylvania does. <laughs> it's affected. You know, I'd say. Close to seven the seven billion out of seven point seven billion people on this earth, and um that's you know that's one of those situations where it changes everyone granted that's not literally people killing other people war in that sense it's a different kind of war, you know, and um uh, not to downplay war by the way i I love that this wow this guy fucking loves war <laughs> fucking I fucking
1: love it guys. Guys, I love no. I'm not going I'm not going to go with that bit. I, um, I mean, I think this, the simplest way to like water this down to is in action only in action only benefits the aggressor. And that 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 idea differs depending on the situation you're in, but inaction is not useful. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I I love
2: I love the like what you mentioned, I don't have much to add on to that because um, yeah, you're exactly right. All those, all those moments, all those people, all those scenes really just show you in a fantastical way how this is applicable to your, you, the listener of this podcast right this moment, or you, the viewer of that movie, how it applies to your life, um, and that's why it, it works so well. It has its, it, it's really a credit to to. Two main parties: J.R.R. Tolkien and the director slash writers of this film, so like Peter Jackson and his tight knit crew of writers. Um, where you take such a fantastical situation, where you have these gods and these rings, these artifacts of power, and these otherworldly creatures in this this hyper fantasy war, but somehow you take those scenarios and you take that and put it into a different context into modern society into daily life. And that that's what makes this work so timeless. That's why people love the Lord of the Rings, you know, 50 to 70 years later. That's why people are so amped for the TV show that Amazon is making that apparently is going to cost more money than game of Thrones costs to make. Um, That's why people are also hesitant because how beloved, Or how beloved this series is. Uh, There's so much that this book series does, and um, hopefully, you being here, you already know. And we're we're just kind of preaching to the choir here. But anyways, um,
1: while
2: we have a moment, let's
1: throw Gandalf under the bus here. Oh, go ahead, Um, Gandalf. Let's throw him under the bus real quick. That dude had a ring of power. Why does that never come up?
2: Uh, Let's throw a bigger person under the bus if we're gonna throw people under the bus elrond why does he do nothing during this war
1: uh he doesn't do nothing he doesn't he sends elves to uh (laughs) to uh helms deep because he starts to hashtag feels bad man well i mean technically it's more of
2: galadriel but
1: yes and well, it's it's after the discussion discussion they they have yeah. when they are uh, gearing up to depart for Valinor, yeah. and we're um, gonna get into that a little bit later. The discussion he has with Arwen, and uh, but it, yes, it, uh, again though, no, like that that comes with a whole different bag of what's going on, and Elrond yeah. having seen the weakness of men and giving up on this a long time yeah. ago. Yeah,
2: and we're gonna actually get into that a little bit later, so. Um, Don't think we're leaving that great. on. A thread. I can't wait like, to talk about. R- Ballinoy, like Rich, with you. Rich isn't leaving it on a thread on purpose. He's he's saying like he knows it's coming, so he's kind of pre. He's doing a great job of previewing. He's he's giving you a little, what we call a breadcrumb in the industry, uh, the industry that hey, I'm not oh, a part gonna of. But I'm going to pretend I'm a part of
1: as oh, so of the podcasting industry? <laughs> yes, that. We, we don't have unified terms. We, <laughs> the, nobody tells us the what to idiots do. who think they have good opinions club. That's the one I'm talking about. That industry. They know where to, they know where to email That's me. That's
2: true. While Théoden, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli and the rest of the Ro- or the rest of the Rohan, the rest of Rohan evacuates the Helm's Deep, Gandalf leaves to find Éomer and the Rohirrim, hoping to enlist them to help restore the kingdom. On the trek to Helm's Deep, Aragorn and Eowyn, Théoden's niece, forge a friendship. However, Eowyn becomes infatuated with Aragorn. While traveling to Helm's Deep, the refugees are ambushed by warg riders sent by Aragorn to stop. By Aragorn, what the fuck did I write here, Rich? What am I some kind of noob? Back,
1: back yourself up hey, a little bit. Let's rewind. I think you're mixing that. up some names, maybe.
2: Let's rewind that. Let's rewind that. While traveling to Helm's Deep, the refugees are ambushed by riders sent by Saruman to stop them. During the fight, Aragorn becomes entangled with a warg and plunges off a cliff, presumed to be dead. He awakens sometime later, found by his horse, Brego. He slowly makes his way to Helm's Deep, but observes Saruman's army marching to the fortress. So... On a recent watch of this sequence, uh, obviously not minutes before the podcast, like you, Rich. Shout out to you. Uh, This was one of the few scenes in the movie. It was like two hours before that this part happened. Yeah. This was one of the few scenes in the movie that I think hasn't aged well, actually. You can easily tell the green screen effects of Aragorn looking and seeing the army marching up. So, can you talk for a moment? Oh, Chia, sorry. That being said, it's crazy to oh, no, I was, it's crazy to me that the special effects still hold up almost twenty years later, despite the few scenes that it doesn't. Can you talk for a moment about how important the special effects are to immersing the viewer into the story?
1: Uh I think they're very important and I think for the most part in this film. Uh, I think it is almost at, like, a Jurassic Park level of almost everything holds up. Uh, It's funny you say, this is actually the one sequence. Specifically, like, a lot of the stuff going on with the wargs is a little rough. Um, But it doesn't fully, like, divest me from it. Uh, Obviously, you can tell that it is a little green around the gill in some parts here. But there's so much other stuff where they chose to go practical and use the least amount of digital they had to in terms of big practical sets or, you know, using motion blur on stop motion set pieces where they could to make this hold up. And it mostly does. But this is the one scene where uh, I notice exactly what you're noticing. Yeah, it's it's like
2: it's only jarring in that when you watch the movie, because this one was filmed between what was it 99 the, the whole trilogy was filmed between 99 1999 and 2002 i believe i might be wrong it might be 2001 yeah. i apologize if so uh to all the mega fans out there but the fact that the special effects uh from weta workshop still hold up this many years later is seriously impressive um because most movies in the 90s and early 2000s, when you go watch them, the special effects were great at the time, but obviously most of them don't hold up. But this movie very much does. So when you have those mo- those moments, those scenes that stick out, uh, that aren't as high of quality, it's it's so noticeable because obviously where the technology is at now. And it's it's not that detracting at the end of the day. Um, and maybe for some people it is, I don't know, but in general, the special effects are so integral to the story, um, to making this come to life for it to be as fantastic and as spectacular as it is. I mean, first things first, you got to think about Gollum slash Smeagol. And the amount of work that they put into that character. Because uh, I've watched a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, as Rich, I know you have as well. Uh, Andy Serkis obviously did the tracking for all of that. Uh, did all the, amp- the like, all the action, all the stunts and whatnot. And then there was a team that had to render a basic version of Smeagol slash Gollum uh, to put over that. And then they had to send that off to the special effects team to really put on the the coats of paint and really bring it to life. And one thing that, you know, first time viewers probably won't notice or even second or third time viewers is that when Gollum goes between Smeagol and Gollum, the pupil dilates or contracts according to who is talking. So when the pupil gets bigger, that's Smeagol. And when the people people get smaller... Spiegel
1: has the softer eyes, yeah. yeah. When the
2: people get smaller, that's Gollum. And that's something you may not notice on those first few tries, but the fact that there was that much meticulous detail put into the special effects 20-plus years ago, and it still holds up, is insane. And that's what brings that character to life. Or you think about um, the spider sequence, which is in the Return of the King, not to get too far ahead, but how incredible that whole sequence looks like there are so many so many moving parts in these movies um that yeah like to bring to scope how big things are happening in this world in this universe it would have been impossible without green screen and without the special effects. And it's kind of funny to think about, like, years ago, the Beatles, when they were together, and I know you know the story, Rich, uh, they wanted to do the Lord of the Rings, and each one of the Beatles was going to be a different character, and it ended up not happening. And um, just to imagine, like, this trilogy being brought to life in the 70s and 60s, it's kind of horrifying to me. Uh, Ringo, granted, what is are we going to do with this a... ring? <laughs> Drogo! i got to take the ring from you uh, that's my john lennon impression it was terrible let's let's scratch that from existence but it's uh, really troubling let's move on yeah 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 but i I know there's a live a live uh, screen adaptation that was filmed years and years prior that's absolutely hilarious and terrible and frightening all, all at once and i know there's an animate a semi animated uh version of it out there as well which i have yeah the seen rankin and one. bass
1: versions uh the rankin' and bass versions are actually pretty solid. I'd also recommend you can watch it on YouTube now that everybody go watch the Russian version of The Lord of the Rings from the nineties. <laughs> that's the one that's really fucking bizarre, right? It's got the Tom Bombadil scene in it. I'd recommend everybody watch it.
2: Which means that you shouldn't watch it because Rich likes weird shit. But no, um It's
1: so fucking weird. Get really high first, let me be clear.
2: I've seen clips <laughs> of it and it's pretty fucking odd. But that being said, like, I just, I can't imagine this being shot before this technology existed, because they would not have been able to capture the scope or the immersion necessary, I believe. So, to put it simply, after... Certainly not, yeah. After Arwen observes Aragorn finding his way back to Helm's Deep, she is confronted by Elrond, who tells her to depart with him to the Grey Havens after the war is over. If she chooses to stay, she will experience suffering as she will outlive Aragorn, who will eventually succumb to old age. She reluctantly departs for Valinor. Afterwards, Elrond is contacted by Galadriel, who tells him that they should honor the alliance of elves and men, prompting them to send an army of elves to Helm's Deep. Now, I know you said you wanted to mention something about Valinor, even though there's more story before the question. Is there anything you want to mention here, Rich?
1: Yeah, I kind of wanted to get into the whole Valinor thing because the movies never in the extended editions a little bit more, but I don't think they ever really talk about what Valinor is. Um so for anyone who's not up on it, I just wanted to clarify. Valinor is um where the Valar are from, which are the the literal gods of this world. It is a continent to the uh east of Middle-earth. Um, And it is sort of, they call it, like, the land of immortality, basically. And elves are allowed to go out and live there. Um, Though it is not a a place where only, like, immortals dwell, like, later in these these novels. Exceptions are made for specifically Bilbo, uh, Frodo, uh, and Sam. But there's some weird details they never really get into. Like, non-immortals never live there forever. So, So Bilbo, Frodo, Sam, like, the hobbits will have to come back at some point. Um and it's basically like through through translation and stuff and getting what Tolkien was going for it almost seems like a like a dante's inferno sort of like paradiso uh sort of thing like no one is intended to to live there like immortally forever it is like a stop on the way to true paradise um but but it's also worth noting because you mentioned the, the order of um the of wizards of gandalf of saruman earlier and they're all from valar originally they are Basically the easiest way to think of them because they are not men, they're they're demigods basically. Um and the original the wizards that came to Middle-earth from Valar were Gandalf the Grey, Saruman the White, Radagast the Brown, and then there are two blue wizards that are never named in any of Tolkien's works and it's simply stated I believe that they traveled west and were never seen again. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's just, it, it's just a lot of, of, of dump, but it's it's information that gives some context. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, Valinor, you don't really know what it is, and I think it's kind of cool that the, the movies leave it mysterious and don't try and explain it because I think that's one of those mysteries that when you get to the end of the trilogy really pays off um, in the way that they shot it because, yeah, that, that mystery is what really gives you kind of a sense of completion when the trilogy is all done. And when it gives it gives it a sense of like what's at stake here when Elrond is like I'm sending my elves the elves that I I've been entrusted to protect and um kind of govern I'm sending all the Rivendell elves to Valinor you know because <clears throat> the the our time on this earth is over um and it's it gives a sense of finality so. It, the movies do a good job of that, but obviously there's so there's so much more because J.R.R. Tolkien really spent the time fleshing out this whole entire universe. It's pretty impressive. So, um, anyways, let's jump back in. Thank you, by the way, for that, Rich. Actually, because some of that I actually didn't even know, or I didn't remember as well. Meanwhile, in Fangorn Forest, Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard, an Ent. After managing to convince Treebeard that they are allies, they are brought to the Council of Ents, where the Ents discuss what they will do about the upcoming war. They decide not to participate in raging the two hobbits. Treebeard takes the hobbits and plans to drop them off at the outskirts of the forest. Some quick thinking by Pippin, he directs Treebeard in the direction of Isengard. Before they reach Isengard, they come to an area where Saruman, ordered his orcs to level parts of the forest. Treebeard is heartbroken. Enraged, he calls for the forest to attack Isengard. They successfully lay siege to Isengard and trap Saruman in his tower. So I love this whole entire story for so many reasons. Besides what we mentioned previously about everyone being, being affected by war, we get to see Pippin have a moment where he is useful in not being the cause of problems. Also, the moment is so epic when you see Treebeard marching with the other ants to war against Saruman. This has to be one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So, Rich, very simple question. What is one of your favorite scenes from this movie?
0: Oh, wow. Uh,
1: it doesn't have to be the number one, just one
2: of them. Because I have a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, easily, like, there's a lot of stuff at Helm's Deep, but I won't harp on that, because we're probably going to talk about that section at length. Um, when Sam and Frodo and Smeagol are camping on, like, the eastern highlands, and they see the men from the east, the Easterlings, marching to the Black Gate, and you see the war elephants, even, like, that effect still holds up very well, I think, um and is a really cool uh, moment of world-building, because it's when you start really seeing some of the stranger the, the stranger things that you don't really have much context for, and it's, like, not necessarily hand-waved away, but you start getting answers slowly when Sam, like, asks what they're seeing, and Smeagol's only recourse is, like, uh, the Easterlings, like, savage men from the East, and they're, they're marching on the Black Gate a couple thousand every day to add to Saruman's army. Yeah, that's such a good scene. I... It's hard to pick just one
2: scene, which is why I want to say one of your favorite scenes. Obviously, uh, Gandalf's return is an amazing scene. The scene we um, reenacted at the very beginning of the show, the scene, uh, this Ents going to war scene is awesome. I love the even some of the comedy relief scenes, like when uh, Eowyn makes soup for Aragorn. And it's terrible, and he's trying to pretend like he enjoys it. I love those little moments of character building as well and relationship building. There's so many sequences in this movie.
1: There's such a a genuine reaction. uh, And again, like you said, the character building that I love. There's such a genuine reaction when they're on the wall at Helm's Deep, um, and Gimli's asking Legolas what's happening on the other side of the wall because he's too small to see over it. And he just turns to him, he's like, would you like me to describe it to you, or shall I get you a box? And Gimli just lets out this, like, hearty laugh that is so genuine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I love, I think that's what really
2: obviously uh, endears people to Legolas and Gimli's relationship is the whole Battle of Helm's Deep, where they're keeping score of each other, and, they're, and Gimli is, you know, kind of having this banter with Legolas, this character who's generally seen as serious, um... And it's cool to see Legolas kind of break that hard exterior. They just become bros. Yeah. Yeah. The two bros. The two unlikely bros. Because they're... Obviously, the exactly. uh, the movie does a fairly good job of it, but the books much more do it justice that a relationship between a dwarf and an elf is so incredibly rare. So their friendship is extremely, extremely unique. Um which is you know obviously part
1: of what makes the relationship so endearing as well
2: cuz that kind of relates to everyday life which also
1: lends itself to everyone's total it also lends to everyone's apprehension like every party that they meet along the road is like they don't understand what they're looking at they're like it's not often we find a man a dwarf and an elf just walking across the plains of Rohan together yeah
2: yeah i th- i think if there's one big fault Of the Fellowship of the Ring, I feel, you know, as I've gotten older, it's they don't do a good enough job. The movie doesn't do a good enough job of conveying how, you know, how unique and how I don't know how monumental that's the word I was looking for how you how monumental the fellowship really is when they set out. Obviously, they do the best job that they can, I think, with the time allotted to say that like elves, dwarves, hobbits. A wizard uh, and men all coming together for a common purpose is unheard of at this point. It's incredibly unheard of. Besides well, the the, ba- the battle after um, Smog is or Smaug after he is eliminated, the Battle of the Five you know? Armies. Yes, yes. That I mean, that's the only other sequence where you see that. But I wish I wish that Council of Elrond sequence did a little bit better of a job of trying to convey that. Like obviously they show that with the arguing as well, but I just think they could have, you know, punctuated it a little bit better for to make to make it it's, even more obvious how these sequences are between Gimli and uh Legolas.
1: Well, it's it's less even I think about just the unusualness of it and it it turns into a sort of kinship, but the real reason so many people volunteer to go at first is because not a single one of these groups of people trust each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's so
2: true. That's so true. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great stuff. And there are so many great scenes in this movie. So it really is just uh, impossible to pick one, but, um, a lot of my favorite scenes are obviously the most epic ones. Because that's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to, you know, feel the relief or the satisfaction from those scenes. So, all right, let's jump back into the story. We still got quite a bit of ways to go. Aragorn arrives at Helm's Deep to warn everyone of the coming army of Urukai. He urges them to prepare for battle despite being outnumbered. The Lothlorian elves arrive shortly before the Urukai army. After ranged fighting with bows and arrows, and melee combat with the urukai, successfully lodging ladders onto the sides of Helm's Deep. A suicidal urukai runs towards the outer wall, running into a cluster of bombs placed in secret by some of the urukai. Legolas attempts to shoot the urukai down, but is unsuccessful, blowing a hole into the outer wall. The urukai breach the wall, killing the elf commander, Haldir. The remaining troops retreat to the keep, barricading the door. They hold the keep, protecting the women and children further in the caves. Aragorn convinces Theoden to take the remaining troops out of the keep to ride out and meet the Urukai in an effort to reunite them with Aelmir and the Rohirrim, whom Gandalf promised he would bring back. As they ride out of the keep, Gandalf returns with the Rohirrim and Aelmir. They ride to meet and overwhelm the Urukai protecting the keep. The remaining Urukai flee to Fangorn Forest who are killed by the Ents. So you'd think, by the way I talked about this section, that it was just 15 minutes tops. However...
1: It's like an
2: hour? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, realistically, it's, it's clo- it feels like it's close to half of the movie, is this battle. But I want to leave this question extremely open-ended for you, Rich. So I want you to talk about this battle however you want. What were some of your favorite sequences? What was notable, etc.? The floor is yours.
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah, Battle of Helm's Deep is like this monumentally. Not, not only is it like a really important port, point in this story overall, I feel like it's such, it's so important for cinematography and like the way battle scenes are filmed in movies. And one thing I wanted to get off my chest about it is my love for how unrealistically it takes itself in the right places. Um, and this is what I was getting at earlier when I talked about how I think Game of Thrones didn't take some of the correct lessons from things like Lord of the Rings. One of the choices that is impeccably well-handled here is lighting. This battle takes place in a thunderstorm in the dead of night, and there is this bright blue light. You can see everything clearly. Whereas in something like Game of Thrones, there's so many dimly lit scenes that are just that dimly lit, and they suck because of it. It is impossible to see anything. And their argument for these sorts of choices, in a lot of movies' arguments, I don't want to single out Game of Thrones is that, well, you know, it would be that dark. There wouldn't be a light source. And I wanted to bring up, actually, there's there's a quote that is allegedly from the set that goes around all the time. I have no way of knowing that this is 100% true, um, and I'm probably paraphrasing it regardless, even if it is. But I think it's just such a wonderful answer, is that when they were filming the Battle of Helms Deep and they were, they were stringing up these blue lights to get that glowing blue sort of look to the whole scene, uh, one of the crew members asked, them, asked uh, Peter Jackson, He's like, but where, like, where in this scene is um the light coming from? And he said, it's fantasy. Same place as the music. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Because, no, you actually bring up a
2: really good point that I think a lot of people thought about. But, you know, obviously people not as much into the movie industry or not as in tune with movies probably don't think about right away is yeah there are certain parts in game of thrones that are incredibly dark and difficult to see um which yeah that would be realistic in a real life situation but when you're putting it on on tv when you're putting it in the cinema you need to be able to see what's happening unless there is a very specific reason you know like you have a lit torch, and suddenly it goes out, and you hear fumbling around and people fighting or a, a, a scuffle, and then the light goes back on. Sure, there are there are reasons why you would do that in film, but yeah, I I love the fact that you can see everything that's going on in the Battle of Helm's Deep, even and though it's, it's supposed so beautifully to be, lit.
1: Yeah, where it's like almost this enhanced like moonlight sort of feel. And those opening shots of it, along with the lighting of the archers just kind of pitched back on it, are, are set so perfectly, because the music is fading in, but it's also very quiet, and just as the Orakai army is approaching, a thunderstorm starts, and the, like, overwhelming sound you can hear as the battle starts are just raindrops pattering on uh, armor Yeah, as they start to, like, raise these ladders, and the, the elven archers start to open fire, it's it's such a good scene yeah
2: it really is i i like i like the feeling of despair and just i love the fact that they have a, a moment of waiting like because it, it it builds up the dread that those soldiers themselves probably felt as they're sitting there getting soaked and normally if you're getting soaked to the bone you're you're gonna run in and like protect yourself and prevent yourself from getting you know some kind of sickness or weakening your immune system but they can't because obviously you see these 10,000 torches in the distance moving closer and closer towards you. And that's got to be overwhelming in itself. So the the movie does a good job of taking those moments to kind of convey, Hey, shit's about to go down. This is probably what these people were feeling like at this time. And another thing that kind of really drives that point home is there are see- sequences, scenes right before, all this is taking place where they're outfitting uh, the, the, the young men or the older men at Helm's Deep with weapons and armor. And there are people there who are like, I've never held a weapon before. And they're like, you know, I know it's scary and I know it sucks. And I know none of us are probably going to survive, but we got to protect the people who are in the caves, you know, the women and children. And like, it's shown by certain sequences in the battle too where you have very young boys chucking rocks out of makeshift doors to try and damage the urukai and you have these really old men one guy's missing an eye shooting bow and arrow throwing spears dumping oil like shit like that it it really conveys like how dire this whole battle is that you know the urukai coming in that much of numbers is just insane. And there there's, there's such a small chance for success. I I love that the movie really got that point across. Obviously the book, I think does a little bit better of a job of that. Um, Not that we're trying to slam on the movie at all, because obviously the book has more time to kind of draw those 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 points out and really hit those points home but I think the movie still does a phenomenal job uh like in those very sequences of really getting across that disparity or that despair that's happening between the two
1: Yeah absolutely I mean between there there's um there's some scenes people talk about this scene a lot actually um when Legolas and Aragorn are yelling at each other in Elvish in the keep about um them going to die like i i know there's there's an actual like meme about it where they're like imagine just being in that room and two guys are just yelling at each other in a foreign language and then the last thing one of them says is then i will die with them you're like wait what were they talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's i mean yeah
2: exactly exactly because you're you're all outfitting up and you're all getting ready to go to war and then all of a sudden somebody says that and it's one of the leaders of the army and you're
1: like, oh, I guess we're fucked. <laughs> well, sorry, isn't that guys? guy in charge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, it, yeah, it really gets across this dire point of, they have no one. They're waiting on the riders of Rohan to return that they, they don't think they're, they won't be there until daybreak at the very least. And then the elves show up, which is sort of like helps them to kind of muster this courage of like, maybe this isn't completely hopeless.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about those elves later actually because there's an important 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 distinction important uh there's something important, important to discuss about that um doesn't quite fit this conversation but or this question. One thing I've always wondered about though with these these movies is how the fuck did all these urukai carry all these massive ladders with them? Because they have all these ladders and these like hook shots that hook the ladders in. They have all this shit that they carried with them, and it's like none of it is seen. And it's kind of like the same. Uh, I'm sorry to keep drawing uh, similar conclusions, like from Game of Thrones. Obviously, it's kind of in that same vein, but it's kind of the same thing when the 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 White Walkers uh, went after went after um that that keep and then suddenly they have this this these giant chains that they're dragging out that dead dragon and turning him into an undead dragon it's like where did those chains these massive chains come from that they did that with it's kind of the same thing here um oh by the way spoiler for game thrones
1: what you, you what you don't see shay is that you know how like there's a bunch of goblins just making orakai and pulling them out yeah on the other side of saruman's base of operations there's a bunch of carpenter goblins who are just making (laughs) ladders
2: apparently but like how did
1: they carry these massive
2: ladders like it's never shown as they're marching towards Helm's deep and i guess that would have been like Spoiling the surprise of these massive ladders, so it makes
1: it be a little weird. Well, uh, the guys with the ladders were like way at the back, and then when they got to the front, they crowd surfed them. Up to the guys <laughs> the front.
2: Same with the bombs. they're like get him to the front. Get him to the front. It's a rock concert. Yeah, ex-
1: exactly.
2: Fucking Red Hot Chili Peppers is beyond that wall. Are we are gonna let them and not like, let us listen? To there's them? like
1: there's like one goblin in a wheelchair that they're they're pushing to the front too. I mean, get this
2: kid to the front. It's a Make a Wish Foundation for the Goblin. He's like, I've always wanted to be a part of a war before. This is my first time and my last. And then he gets shot by an arrow. <laughs> I don't know why he had that accent, but that's the one I'm gonna go with.
1: I love his. I love his accent. He he sounds like my favorite goblin from this movie, which is the uh, the guy that keeps reporting back to Saruman. He goes, "The trees are strong, my lord. Their roots grow deep." <laughs> Yes. Starman, we
2: ran out of metal for the ladders. What are we gonna do? <laughs> I
0: why don't is, know, you why, imbecile. Why
1: is he from Boston? Why is he? Why is he from Boston? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> yo, he's he's riding from Rohan. A hella strong, Saruman. <laughs> that's what that's what the movie needed is one
2: Bostonian goblin. Listen, Saruman, I really think we should be working on this, but I need to get my tan on, so I'm gonna get the fuck out of here for a few hours. I'll be right back.
1: They should have just put the Wahlberg. They should have just put the Wahlbergs in here.
2: <laughs> oh, that would have been horrible. God, that would have been fucking horrible. Could you imagine Mark Wahlberg as a buff
1: urukai? Ugh. Mark Wahlberg should have just been leading the siege on Azgilliev. Oh man. I, I
2: imagine like Wahlberg playing Sam and uh Sam, sam's like look i
1: know this is wicked fucking
2: bastard but i'm gonna go fuck this bitch first or something something
1: like that or i'm gonna i'm gonna go get some more muscle up, i don't Sam. know if we should i don't know if we should trust this goblin guy mr frodo he seems hella sketchy <laughs> i
2: i want to say things but i'm gonna get too much into that character and say things i probably shouldn't this Faramir so me me. guy's wicked annoying you suddenly turn to your Boston guy is always Peter Griffin. Why? Why is your Boston guy always Peter Griffin? Because
1: Peter, uh, I, because Peter Griffin by definition is an exaggerated uh, man from fucking like uh, eastern uh, eastern United States. Like Rhode Island might as well be Massachusetts. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just,
2: I, I like to call it out because every time we do Boston, you slowly descend more and more into Peter. It Griffin It slowly
1: slips into it.
2: Because because Peter Griffin is a lazy voice, yeah, I get that. Easy to imitate. We've heard it so many times. But well, right. I'm not even doing let's... it intentionally. It's just like it just happened. Right, no, it's all good. It's all good. I don't judge. But uh, let's let's break from this bit and get back into the actual. <laughs> let's get back into the actual uh, story that we came here to do. That was my fault. All right. So after the fight, Gandalf warns Theoden, Eomir, and the three Fellowship members to prepare as Sauron will assuredly retaliate. While these sequences are taking place, Gollum leads Frodo and Sam through the dead marshes to the Black Gate, which was a particularly horrifying scene as a young teen watching this movie for the first time. Frodo and Sam are captured by Rangers of Gondor, led by Faramir, Boromir's brother. Gollum follows the two hobbits, and Frodo helps Faramir capture Gollum in order to save him from being executed by the rangers. After torturing Gollum, Faramir learns of the One Ring, choosing to bring the hobbits and Gollum to Gondor, wanting to give the ring to his father Denethor. So this scene was one of the few times that humanizes Gollum, and it does a really good job of it, I believe. Throughout the trilogy, it is extremely easy to dislike and detest the creature for his eventual terrible actions. However, you see glimpses of Smeagol, a halfling who is controlled and tortured from the moment he glimpsed the One Ring. Between this scene and the famous dialogue that you and I reenacted in the intro where you see Smeagol sad as he looks on towards the two hobbits... How are how important are those scenes to help convey the complexity of the creature Gollum?
1: I think those scenes in particular are maybe less important than his entire arc through this film. Because the Two Towers specifically sees the rise and the fall of Smeagol. It sees the moment where Gollum truly... ...is is gone, in a sense, where um, the, the personality of Smeagol wins out, and he decides that Frodo does want what's best for him, and he's going to help him get the ring to Mordor, and that, again, it shows Frodo's pity on him, that Frodo thinks maybe he can save him, um, that, like, he, he sees him as pathetic, and he sees him as lost, but he thinks, like, maybe he doesn't have to, like, I don't have to kill him, maybe I can save him, and he can be okay, whatever that means at the, at this point in his, like, terrible fucking existence. Um, yeah. But after everything that sort of go down with the Rangers, by, by the end of this film, we see him full circle come all the way back around to, I have to look out for myself, and I can only trust myself, and the ring is what he is fixated on.
2: Yeah, I I think that's so important to note, is that Frodo, by doing this journey, he obviously, he's... He, Initially, volunteers to do it because he, you know, he is persuaded by Gandalf to do this for the good of hum, for not just humanity, but for the good of all the good, the good folk, the good people of Middle Earth. But then it starts to relate to him more and more. He sees the toll it's taken on Bilbo as he sees Bilbo in Rivendell, and uh, Bilbo has kind of started to lose his mind a little bit. He sees that in Bilbo. He sees that um when he sees what it does to Boromir, what it does to Galadriel, and this is all in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um he sees what it does to even Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring, a a being of such power. Um and then he meets Gollum finally, Smeagol, this this creature that he's been told about uh throughout the fellowship's initial travels, and instead of hating the creature because he's heard Bilbo's and Gandalf's stories for years, he has pity and he feels remorse or not remorse. He feels sorrow for this creature because he sees what this ring has done at its most primal core element and what it's capable of doing. So when he sees Gollum, he decides I need to do this because look what it does to all these people. And he has this point of reference because obviously he's suffering it and he's slowly descending into what all these people have suffered through and become. Um, Obviously people like Gandalf, Galadriel and Boromir didn't suffer it to the level that Frodo has suffered and will continue to suffer throughout this trilogy. But he sees, you know, what it initially does and the end result in both Bilbo and Gollum. And it, it becomes a personal personal mission for him to be like, I need to get rid of this for all of these people, including myself. I mean, the good people, yes, the good folk, but for these specific people. And he feels like if he does that, maybe they will all be free of this curse, of this of this pull towards this object. And um, that that's what makes the Gollum creature... Gollum and Smeagol so interesting. Um, one of the reasons is because Frodo thinks he can save all of these people, including him. Um, which we'll discuss obviously more in the following episode. But I, I mean Gollum is such an interesting character. The way he's he was written going back and forth between, you know, Smeagol and Gollum, that is fascinating. Um what happens to Gollum is also fascinating as well, because you you feel bad in one breath and in the other breath you're like, "Well, fuck it, he deserves it because you you know that this creature has no good intentions. Gollum has no good intentions. Smeagol is just persuaded because he's oh hate to say it this way, but he's a weak minded individual. And he's been, and the reason why that is
1: is because he's been so weakened by this ring. Um, and it's important to note, Gollum had the ring for 500 years. Yeah, exactly.
2: So there's, it's, he's such a just a, a fascinating villain. He, I know it's it's weird to say he's probably one of the best written villain villains of all time because he's so like he skulks, he's ugly, he's manipulative and he's but you still feel bad for he's a tragic figure yes yes exactly because he's so tragic
1: that you you have pity for him yet you hate him and 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 a lot of that is projected on on Frodo's clear feeling of like if I can't do this like this is the the wrong road this is what I could become right exactly it's it was such an interesting choice by
2: J.R.R. Tolkien to show like the the extreme of what will happen if Frodo is not successful in his mission um and it's it's interesting that you know obviously Bilbo bore bore this um what's what's the word i'm looking for he he accepted the consequences of the ring, not knowing what the true consequences were. Um, if that makes sense.
1: Well, he won a riddle contest. He was allowed to have it. The rules. <laughs> exactly,
2: right? But Frodo is aware at this point of what exactly the ring does. And he still chooses to take it. Where Bilbo wasn't entirely sure, where Smeagol was not sure at all, Frodo is sure. And he decides to do this journey anyways, and that's in large part because of Gollum. And what Gollum represents. So the complexity of this character is so integral into the story and so integral to the motivation of Frodo to press on. And I think, obviously, there's a lot to be said of Frodo's mental fortitude and strength. I mean, seriously impressive. But also, he had his example going with him for half of the journey. He's like, this is what I and so many other people can become if we don't get rid of this. And, um, uh, yeah, Gollum just plays an integral part. So I wanted to give him his, his dues there. So, um, we're going to do the mad dash to the end on, on the story. We have a bunch of questions afterwards and I know I've condensed the movie down tremendously. Uh, the book was condensed into the movie and I'm, we are condensing the movie even further, but, uh, obviously that's why you should go watch. But anyways, Mad Dash, let's go. Passing through the sieged city of Osgiliath on the way to Minas Tirith, Sam and Frodo try to warn Faramir of the true nature of the ring and telling him how the ring drove his brother mad. The city is suddenly sieged by the Nazgul and one almost captures Frodo. Sam saves him and reminds Frodo to stay strong and not succumb to the ring's power, reminding him that there is still good left in the world and what they are fighting for. Faramir, who is bystanding, realizes his folly and lets the two hobbits and Gollum go. He warns the hobbits of the path that Gollum plans to lead them through, and he threatens that if any harm is to come to the hobbits, Faramir will personally kill Gollum. While they are walking through a deceased forest, Smeagol and Gollum talk amongst themselves of betraying the two hobbits, leading them to her when they arrive at Kirith Ungol. And that's the end of the movie. There's a lot of emotion in this movie. Lost children, unreciprocated love, heartbreak, death, genocide, and improperly prepared rabbit in one particular stew. Is the emotional heft of this movie part of the reason why you like this movie the best of the three, Rich?
1: Um, I almost think, interestingly enough, I think Fellowship ends in a, a, a slightly darker place in terms of, like, having... being unsure of where to go. And while, while it ends darkly for Sam and Frodo, they at least think they're on a good path, and they don't know what what... even, like, Sam's beginning to trust... Gollum a little um even though he's been apprehensive to it for most of the film it ends in a better place i would say for the rest of the fellowship um mary and pippin have this sort of triumphant moment where they start to feel like they are making a difference that they got the ends to act and to uh siege isengard uh the the battle of helms deep like turns its tide very quickly and uh everyone sort of everyone has an arrow pointing to the finish line at this point they know where they need to go to be doing the thing they need to do while Sam and Frodo, they they just need to depend on them to, to finish what they set out to do. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I definitely
2: think that the first movie ends in a more harrowing place than the second movie. The second movie has, like, some level of uh, triumph because they won the Battle of Helm's Deep even though the bigger battle is about to take place. Uh Frodo and Sam even though they've not gotten to exactly where they want to go they're on the right path being led by someone who they're like you said they're starting to trust. Merry and Pippin like you said they they've managed to actually do something in this war. They've managed to have an effect and they've helped subdue one of the two main evil
1: forces in this in this war. Um unfortunately Pippin will soon meet Denethor and his luck will run out. <laughs> Yeah, Pippin
2: Pippin is a tragic character unto himself, but um yeah. I I think the emotional heft of this movie is really really important. I don't think it's the reason why this movie is so amazing. Um I think that the emotional heft pays off much more in the next movie. But I think I think it's it's a lot of setup emotionally for what's to come, but one one of the most heartbreaking It's a very movie. middle chapter. It is, but one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the entire trilogy is when Theoden is talking with uh, Gandalf at Theodred's funeral, which is his son. Because he was unaware uh, that he himself was sending his own son to battle these orcs in a futile attempt. And he basically sent his son to his own death even though he wasn't in control of his own mind. And then he has this moment of just pure grief where he says, no parent should have to outlive their son and then just breaks down. And the music in that part it is so emotionally affecting that sequence, even though I don't have children myself. Um, I could, I could never imagine. It's, it's impactful for sure. I could never imagine like that whole sequence taking place, you know, sending your own son to your death and you not even being aware of it. And, um, yeah, uh, like, there are those moments peppered in this movie, obviously, that make it so impactful. And it really endears you to Theoden and Eowyn and Eomir, and that, like I said, that pays off a lot more in the upcoming movie when certain things happen, which we don't want to spoil quite yet. We'll get into the spoilers of that movie in the next
1: episode, but if I... Yeah. B- before you uh, m- move on from there, I actually had pulled earlier, I had bookmarked this, because you mentioned uh, Theoden's line about his about burying uh, Theodreds, and I did actually want to read that exchange between him and Gandalf. This is the actual token version, which, I, again, I still think is like quite a, an interesting conversation. Um, where's Theoden to Gandalf, and he says, "'Alas, that these evil days should be mine, the young perish and the old linger, that I should live to see the last days of my house.'" And Gandalf replies, "Theodred's death was not of your making." To which Theoden simply replies, "No parent should have to bury their child." Yeah, yeah, it's yeah.
2: Obviously, the 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 language is of an older form of English spoken, but the the sentiment still very much stands there. Yeah, <clears throat> such a such a harrowing and affecting scene, but um. Yeah, the the emotional heft is definitely a part of why what makes this trilogy and this movie in particular so so great. Um I think it's a good how would I word this? I think that what part of what makes this movie so fantastic is everything that it's setting up for and the way it dispatches of one of the two forces of evil. Is that you that's part of the reason why I like that end scene so much is these these ha- these living trees, which you would never expect, the forest, because forests are kind of a symbol of peace and tranquility. There is a uh, there is a Japanese word called shin shinrin. I can't. I can never do the Japanese r. Shinri, shinrin yoku, which means uh, to bathe. In nature, essentially, uh, when you go into nature, when you go into the forest, you are kind of going back to your core elements and you are recharged and you feel rejuvenated by nature, by the earth, by the forest. So there there are many, many cultures, many religions, many societies that kind of have this concept of nature being healing. And so you don't expect nature to re- like that form of nature to retaliate obviously we have like uh you know floods and you know hurricanes things of that nature but
1: the ends cause a big flood in this scene <laughs> exactly
2: but the fact that nature the forests uh, a symbol of peace and tranquility is actually getting involved in war kind of tells you th- what's at stake here the fact that nature itself you know, reclaims. It's fighting back. Yeah. It's fighting back. There's obviously a nature versus man. Parallel or theme that could be drawn there. And I'm sure personified nature versus man. And I'm sure that that was intentional by J.R.R. Tolkien. Obviously that's not the main point, but the fact that they really drive home that everything is affected and they they kind of show that in bits and pieces here, while also kind of dangling the carrot on the string, saying it shit's really going to hit the fan in the final movie. What you expect? You fully expect
1: it to. There. There was one thing in the the end scene we didn't bring up earlier that I wanted to mention that I've always liked. Um, when they talk about uh, tree tree beard, who I don't know if we've named yet, um, is the end that Mary and Pippin are yeah, speaking with him. and sort of befriend and okay, yeah, it, it, we've been talking for so long, it's hard to keep track. Um, no, that's good. When they're when they're speaking with Treebeard, he has he has a line at one point where the the Ents are deliberating, and Mary asks him why everything's taking so long, and I've always i always loved this, and he says, "Uh, Entenese the Ent language. He goes, it takes a very long time to say anything at Ent. So we have found that if you're going to say something at all, you need to make sure it's something worth saying. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a great scene too. It just kind of it speaks to how." all these walks of life are being drawn into this war. I mean, that's, that's part of what that scene is also trying to convey. So next question without getting too much into the books, one major difference between the book and the movie is the inclusion of the elf army going to Helm's deep in the book. Only a few elves join Rohan's army in protecting the fortress. Besides wanting to include the actor who plays Haldir, the leader of the elves who was played by Craig Parker, who was a famous actor in New Zealand where they filmed the trilogy. Why do you think some of these choices of departure were made by Peter Jackson and the crew? And
1: do you think they were effective? I think it's all about scope. Um, And the thing is, in the book, they sort of speak to a little bit more about the... um usefulness of elves and how they're all basically so so much more powerful than men in in terms of like a few elves by the way the books have built them up at that point really could turn the tide of battle um i think this sort of legion of elven archers showing up is meant to be more simple and it makes it clear like no this can turn the tide of this battle like this could be the difference between uh victory and defeat and it also shows uh, a bit more kinship building once again between the world of men and elves and i think it's very effective
2: yeah yeah i think that like without being able to expand upon things so much as the book does that they need to get across like the overall emotional elements of what the book was trying to do without getting like lost in the weeds so to speak if that makes sense so how could they have accomplished that I also don't think. Uh,
1: I was also going to say I don't think the the movies necessarily make it clear how long it's been since uh, the events of like a seal door and all that. Um, don't exactly make it clear that most of the people at Helms Deep have probably never seen an elf before Legolas arrived. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I. I
2: think that you know the movie does a good job of you know including certain elements or chopping out certain elements while keeping the core themes and the 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 emphasis of emotion through those choices if that makes sense so yes there are some deviations and obviously one one major deviation was wanting to include uh craig parker in the movie because he was such a famous actor at the time that it was kind of like hey new zealand you've let us film for these years you've kind of let us alter the landscape to make these movies which obviously they were very much a part of because it's brought so much revenue in terms of tourism all these years later, uh, for both the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit uh film sets. And it really put Weta workshop on the map so much so that uh, I don't know if you've seen this recently. I've I've watched some interviews with uh one of the one of the two founders of Weta workshops. But uh they created this kind of Weta not necessarily theme park but theme park esque area in New Zealand as a new tourism spot. And that's largely because of their work. It's not only because of their work on Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Obviously, they've done a lot of big name things and they have a lot of projects they're working on now. But I think Lord of the Rings really probably put them on the map. So obviously, New Zealand is probably, I would assume, very appreciative of the revenue that these movies have brought in in terms of tourism. Um, Tourism revenue? Yeah, I can say revenue like 10 more times. But Craig, including Craig Parker was I'm sure in some, revenue. Revenue was in part like uh well, let's get somebody in here who whose country we're filming in and on top of that uh appeal to the people of the country that we're filming in, but I think overall the 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 theme elements get across even though they make those departures and I think that's the most important key that was made i sure. remember discussing this with uh my father back in the day and he's like i didn't really like the the inclusion of Haldir because he's not he's not in the books so i'm like yeah but i mean it, you know it gets that, that emotional heft across and you know like there there are people who are obviously so much into the source material that and this this goes along with anything that they are unaccepting of departures from that. I mean, we've seen Rich, you and I've seen that with the final fantasy seven original and the remake, how up in arms people get about that. And, you know, um, I myself got up in arms about the dementors from the final fantasy seven remake, but this is not about video games. Point being is that a lot of people get angry when it's major departures from source material sometimes. And I say, if the the I core, tr- I try not ideas, to, to like an emotion gets across and it's not a drastic it doesn't drastically affect the story in a, in a negative way. Be open to it, you
1: know? I mean, it works and it worked in these movies. I'll give you this. I think I've given, giving you this hot take before. I don't really care for these movies much, but I think the best parts of the Hobbit films are the parts they made up entirely. (laughs) I, I refuse to watch after
2: the, like the first one wasn't bad, but I was like a 300 page book. They're dragging it out this fucking long. Where the Lord of the Rings, they really had to compact though? things. The Hobbit, they really were really dragging certain things out. And one of the things that yeah. I didn't like originally. Oh, this isn't The Hobbit. And you know what? I'm going to stop on that tangent. I'm going to stop on that tangent. We're focusing on we'll Lord of of the Hobbit. We'll, we'll do one. We'll do The Hobbit. There. Don't worry. Yeah, we could probably do The Hobbit. I'll suffer through those movies someday. Perfect. Um. So we can do another trio of podcasts on that podcast episodes but all right two more questions rich what impact do you think this movie has had on other period movies that have intense battle sequences within them
1: um it's definitely had plenty in terms of like scale and feel and music use and i think game of thrones are the easiest examples um like the battle of the bastards and things like that were clearly taking influence from events like the battle of helm's deep even though i don't think they took some of the better parts uh <laughs> when when doing that sort of stuff um it's hard to really pinpoint something just because i feel like the past 20 years of media following that have all taken some form of dna from that even into like the sci-fi realm and in like the way larger scale battles were filmed for things like star wars but i don't think any of it uh quite hits the same mark for me it doesn't feel as uh everlasting yeah
2: and it's hard to say like what exactly influenced what and affected what to some degree because i think i could say in theory yeah this this influenced a lot of battle movies to come after it but of course you had movies like uh braveheart which had some insane intense battle sequences that were not seen to that degree on film up until that movie. Um, mm-hmm. Even now, like, you go watch that movie, and some of those battle sequences are still impressive this many years later. Um, Braveheart's one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, and the battle sequences in that movie are s- still impress me. You, all these years later, all these years after seeing that film as many times as I have. So... Lord of the Rings came after that, and you could say, oh, it influenced things like Kingdom of Heaven, which also had Orlando Bloom. It influenced movies like
1: Troy. Um, It influenced a lot of movies to have Orlando Bloom in them. (laughs) Exactly. Uh...
2: You could say that, and it's like, well, yeah, Lord of the Rings probably had some level of influence. So did Braveheart, probably, and other movies that came before it. Um, you could probably even say like a movie like The Warriors, the movie that came out in 1979, with their battle sequences probably had some influence on the movies that were, that I'm naming right now. But I definitely think that this movie had to have had some major influences on just how large... Uh, scale battles can be done and the CGI that could be used and how it could be used because they, it's insane like watching some of that behind the scenes stuff. And you can actually watch a lot of it on YouTube. Uh, Some people have uploaded it onto YouTube and they go into very precise detail about how they would animate these battle sequences and which you can, you can probably tell now because the the cgi starting to date just a little bit not a lot just a little bit but in certain sequences you can see that there are like actual actors and actresses reenacting various scenes and then there are cgi characters and one really big example of that when i watched the documentary stuff was um in the return of the king when they're fighting the giant elves and there the, the horse is running towards the elf and the elf is moving towards the camera. Some of those actors are real and some of them are CGI as the elf sweeps its massive tusks to the side, knocking out a bunch of those horses with people on them. And how they had to film that is insane. So um the the, the point being, I, I kinda got long winded there, is basically yes, I think this movie um had a massive, massive influence on a lot of a lot of movies and how they do battle scenes no matter how small or how massive that influence actually was uh remains to be seen but yeah this movie is obviously uh how, how do i word? it's so influential in the film industry i believe so
1: absolutely yeah. absolutely
2: yeah okay The last question, Rich, it's a very, very difficult question. Um, I I don't expect you to have a full answer for this. Um, And it's pretty, and it's customary. If you've listened to these episodes before, you know that this question always comes up. This is kind of our quote-unquote rating system that we have for uh, the Chomping After Dark episodes. But, uh, Rich, Godspeed to you. I hope you can do it. Do you recommend this
0: movie?
1: Yes. Okay.
2: Thank you. I know that was really difficult
1: for you to answer. I'm I'm proud of you. Um, it was, it was a tough one. Um, yeah, I I don't think <laughs> it really serves us to expand upon uh, why we recommend it in any big way until we we talk about the trilogy of the whole as an end. But yeah, this is this is uh this is one of my favorite ones to go back to. Uh, it has so many great moments. The Battle of Helm's Deep is one of my fi- like I we'll just rewatch the Battle of Helm's Deep on YouTube sometimes. It's good,
2: dude. It's so good. Um and I myself also obviously recommend this film. We've sat here for an hour and a half talking about it and talking about how much we love it. I feel like there, there are so many different things we could break down in minute detail, but that's probably not as fun, um, as listening to just kind of this like for general sure. overall kind of stuff. And if anybody ever has anything that they want to bring up like any minor discrepancies that we may have made during this episode anything that you kind of want to discuss in greater detail any kind of information that you want to illuminate us on edify us on feel free to dm us Uh, we're both on instagram and twitter um you should be able to find us pretty easily and um actually you know what? let's just give out our handles rich what are your handles on instagram on and twitter in case people want to
1: i am uh reach out to you the richmeister the richmeister zero on on all things on the instagrams on the twitters there you go i'm inconsistent ma uh, i'm professor layton with
2: two n's on instagram because the professor layton with one n was taken by some stupid ass game that uh nobody seems to know we're playing heard
1: heard that i don't think that'll be successful
2: yeah i don't either and then um of course you can reach me on twitter at SheaBudda. Which is very old and I need to change need to change that.
1: But um Rose sounding.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 a holdover from many, many, many years ago. So I need to change like that. Let's hold you over. Um <laughs> anyways, uh you can add us there if you want to talk to us directly about stuff that we mentioned during this episode. Or if you want to, you know, just Direct it at us in general. Um, Swordchomp at gmail.com will do it as well. We will check your emails. And if you have anything major to say, we can always read it on the next episode as well because we will be doing your, uh, not your, we'll be doing the Return of the King. So I'm really excited for that episode. But uh, that's going to wrap it up here. Uh, I had a really, really fun time with this episode like we did last time. And I'm absolutely very much looking forward to Return of the King. That's going to be a fun one. It's going to be It's going to kind of be a sad wrap up because I've really enjoyed doing these episodes and you know when there's a finale. But then we can do three worse movies. <laughs> I don't want it to end rich.
1: It has to for content. Whatever.
2: We can just do like a 24-hour podcast con- where we just talk about these movies and never stop.
1: Just a uh, really, a uh, really, uh, we'll do, um, when the Amazon uh, TV series starts, we'll do uh, a podcast for every episode. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. I'd be down. It depends on how they
2: release it. That's if a it'll whole be, separate like, podcast. Though. Of, like That's going to, ha- that's going to
1: have its own art. That's going to have its own artwork, everything.
2: Yeah. I don't know if they're going to like season dump like most outlets do nowadays, or they'll do it episode by episode. So. Amazon tends to do its stuff episode by episode. Okay. Well, then that's what we'll do. That's what we'll have to do. And we can always do, like, mini hitters of that, too. Because, like, these episodes are, like, an hour, an hour and a half long. But, like, those episodes, we can make it, like, a quick 20-minute hitter. You know? 45 minutes minimum. Fine. Fine. But, anyways, uh, thank you so much for being here, Rich. Uh, Thank you to you, the To you, the listeners, Uh, again, if you want to check out more content from us, check out ways you can support us. Head over to SwordChomp.com. I'm not going to run through that whole rigmarole again. I just want to say thank you for listening to the show. um, And thank you to all the crew and all the actors and everybody who worked on this trilogy. So um, we will be back next episode with the wrap-up, the final movie of the trilogy, um, Return of the King. I was your host, Shay. Thank you so much for listening. Be well take care wash your hands drink a lot of water i know one of you listening probably has a headache because you are dehydrated drink some water it's really hot out there right now and uh take care